If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me uh, to Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, chapter 1, verse 15, excuse me. Uh, last week we covered verses 1 through 14. But we want to look at this uh, topic, the preeminent Christ. Now, if you were here last week, and if you know anything about the book of Colossians, Paul is dealing with a group of people that were called the Gnostics. Gnosticism taught that uh, salvation was through knowledge. And so they came heavily against the teachings of Christ, that Jesus is the incarnate God, and that through him is salvation, and that Jesus died on the cross for us. Now, this morning, if you're not a Christian, most of us in the Western uh, you know, area of the United States of America, or, or the West, that is, uh, we have heard of Christ at one time or another. We know of the risen Christ. But there are still so many that don't believe in the risen Christ. They don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And so Paul pins this beautiful epistle. And he's going to definitely draw this morning the preeminence of Christ. And then we're going to see that Jesus was even at creation. And yet we have Gnostics in the time of Paul. We still have Gnostics today that don't believe that Jesus is God. And so this morning, if you don't know Christ, you've never received him. I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to each and every one of our hearts. Now, before we get into Colossians chapter 1, verse 15... Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, and it just kind of gives us an introduction. One of the things I'll be sharing this morning is, I, I love to give you references to commentaries. Uh, that's not a problem with me. I love commentaries, especially when they're in agreement to the doctrines that we're teaching. But obviously, you have to be careful with certain commentaries. But one of the things we learned in shepherd school years ago, and the greatest commentary is the Bible itself. And so we want to speak about the preeminent Christ. And so here in the book of Hebrews, Paul begins to lay this foundation. If you know anything about the book of Hebrews, uh, it, it speaks about that Jesus is our high priest. He's our complete high priest. And so in Hebrews, we're going to see here verses 1 through 4, and we're going to see the superiority of Christ. The caption of my Bible says here in verses 1 through 4, God's supreme revelation of Christ, of Jesus Christ. This is going to coincide, and we'll go to it later, with the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. But notice how he begins here in verse 1, Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at various times and in various ways, he spoke in time past uh, to the fathers by his prophets. So Paul here begins to describe in the Old Testament times, God spoke to our ancestors. He spoke to the patriarchs uh, through the prophets. And if you know anything about your Old Testament, uh, we understand the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And a lot of times we don't read those books because they're intense and, and they're elongated. But I love the minor prophets. And the only reason they're called the minor prophets is because they're a smaller book. And so we draw in the Old Testament from the book of Hosea, the book of Joel, the book of Amos, Jonah, Micah, Obadiah. We see the book of Nahum, the book of Haggai, uh, the book of Habakkuk. These are great books. And it's not long for us to read those. And so here in Hebrews, he says that in the Old Testament times, God spoke to the forefathers through the patriarchs, through the prophets. But now notice verse 2. But has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, which is Christ, obviously, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the worlds. Listen to the position he's giving Christ. And so here in verse 2, for the last 2,000 years now, church, God has spoken to man through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. 
Yet we find Jesus, according to the scripture here, already in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Notice that Paul calls him a joint heir. A joint heir was responsible for the creation of the world. The word heir here in the Greek, in the New Testament, possessor of all things. And so Jesus, so many times we shared this at Christmas, we only place him there in the manger scene. But Jesus was already back in Genesis 1.1. Now we read left to right. But if you go off the page and you go to the left, Jesus was already there before Genesis 1.1. And so this is the preeminence of Christ. Look at verse 3. He continues here. He says, Who being in the brightness of His glory, speaking of Christ, and the express image of His person, and the upholding of all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself, listen to this now, purged our sins, he sits down at the right hand of majesty on high. What a beautiful statement. And so we draw as we're going to get into the book of Colossians now. But look at verse 3 again, the literal translation. The sun reflects, speaking of Christ, God's own glory. And everything about him represents God exactly. He sustains the universe by the mighty power of his command. We're going to see that in our study this morning of Colossians. After he died to cleanse us from the stain of sin, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of majesty of God. There in the heavenly place. This is Christ whom we know as God incarnate. We know him as Jesus Christ, the God-man. And so there are those like the Gnostics that do not believe. There are those still today that don't believe. Jesus is God. Now we come to the conclusion. Look at verse 4. Having become so much better than the angels. This is given that authority to Christ. Having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained. And listen to this. A more excellent name. And so here we're coming to the conclusion of, of this portion of Hebrews and the, the first four verses of Hebrews, chapter 1. Here the writer introduces the person of Jesus Christ. The theme for the uh, epistle is the superiority or the preeminence of Christ. There is no other one like him. Everything and everyone has come under him. And so we have to determine even this morning. Jesus is number one. And so we're going to see in verses 5 through 14 that this person, the superiority to all things, if you continued there in the book of Hebrews. But this name, and it's interesting, if you've been a Christian long enough and you bring forth the name of Christ, see, they'll talk about God. You see, because the word God can encompass so many things. But there's an offense to the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus, my Savior. And in many circles, those are fighting words. I want you to write down these two verses. In the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, uh, chapter 45, verse 23. And then Paul picks it up in Romans chapter 14, verse 11. But listen to what the text says in both scriptures. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh, we struggle many in the world today. Well, no, Muhammad is the answer. Buddha is the answer. Confucius is the answer. Well, Gandhi had a, uh, you know, a lot to say in this area. And the list goes on. There's many. The Bible says that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And you have to come to grips with that. And if He is the Savior of the world, have we asked Him to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us, to purge our sins, as we read earlier, of all unrighteousness, and have we come to the cross now? Have we come to saving grace? Will we share in His inheritance because we're joint heirs also. 
And so Paul's going to establish this preeminent Christ. Now let's go back to our text. In, for, in Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 15. And he's speaking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus Christ, and I like this translation, is the visible image of the invisible God. He, Jesus Christ, existed before God created back in Genesis chapter 1 because He, Christ, is supreme over all of God's creation. Now, oftentimes we will translate a little bit deeper the word meaning from the Greek in the New Testament. And so the word image here, that Jesus is, listen to this, the likeness, the resemblance, uh, the representation of God. The invisible God. Because the Bible says nobody has ever seen God. And so I draw from John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. But yet we describe here Jesus, the firstborn, the first begotten of God. And so you go to John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Then you go to John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so Paul says that Jesus is before all creation. That Jesus was before, listen now, Genesis 1.1. And he always was and he always will be. He is God. This is the preeminent Christ. And so it is so important for us to understand this. Now, as I shared earlier, I love to use commentaries, and commentaries are good. But I was always taught that the greatest commentary are the scriptures themselves. So we quote from Isaiah, we quote, you know, from Romans. Listen to this particular verse. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul tells young Timothy, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Paul's telling Timothy, Jesus is God. <coughs> Excuse me, now for Paul, for Timothy, and for us this morning, it's a done deal. But there are those like the Gnostics at the time. There are those today that are types of Gnostics, and they do not believe that Jesus is God. I want you to turn to this with me. Leave a marker there. Go to the Gospel of John. I want you to see these two verses. I want you to mark them in your Bible. John chapter 14 with me. Again, we struggle in our Western Hemisphere sometimes because we've arrived. We've got our educations and such, and there's a lot of philosophers out there. You know, there's a lot of critics out there. Well, how do we know you weren't there? And so we have to look at the scriptures. And so in John 14, look at verse 8 and 9. Simple here. Philip, one of the disciples, said to Christ, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Great question. Jesus said to him, Philip, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He's asking him back a question. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? These are the words of Christ. And so Jesus is declaring that he is God. He says to him, you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Radical statement. Now, in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. And verse 58 says, Jesus told the religious leaders of Israel, Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, if you know your scriptures in the New Testament, there are seven I am statements. This I am statement is very radical. Now, let me give you some heads up here. In Exodus chapter 3, 
Moses is getting his commission from God. We know the story. God's speaking to him uh, through the burning bush, and he's going to send him back. He's commissioning him to go to Egypt, uh, let my people go. And so Moses asks, when the people ask who you are, who sent you, what shall I say? In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, listen to the statement. God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. You see, Jesus is this I am statement. God says, I am that I am. I am the becoming one. Jesus says, I am that I am, the becoming one. And so imagine what Paul is going through to teach this. Gnostics are everywhere, denying uh, the deity of Christ, denying uh, the preeminence of Christ. And so, so beautifully, we read it in the book of Hebrews. We've read it in the Gospel of John. We read it here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now in John chapter 8, verse 58. And then we recall, uh, again, using uh, the Old Testament as our commentary. Back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Now, let's go back to our text. Look at verse 16 now. For by him, he's still speaking of Christ. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible. Whether uh, thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created uh, through him and for him. I like that last portion of scripture. Now, if you look at the translations here, the word thrones uh, speaks of powers of any kind. And we understand there's powers in good and evil. Then he speaks about dominion. And <laughs> dominion speaks of rulership. Then he speaks about principalities. Now, principalities here, uh, the translation in the, in the Greek is chiefs. And we understand the chief as number one, the number one ruler, the number one in charge. And then the word power here, uh, authority. And we understand that Christ is, is authority. The word power speaks of jurisdiction, authority. It speaks of strength. And so verse 16 here is declaring something uh, very unique. Now let me give you the translation of verse 16. Jesus Christ, the one uh, through whom God created everything in heaven and in earth. He made the things we can see and the things we cannot see. He's made kings and kingdoms and rulers and authorities, etc., etc. Everything has been created uh, through him. And here is, you know, the icing on the cake. Everything is made through him and for him. Beautiful. And again, we go to the commentary. Now, just stay there, listen to it, because I don't want you to lose it. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, you can read it later on your own, but it speaks about the eternal word. John the Beloved had this deity uh, that the Holy Spirit had spoken to him. And so clear. The reference is also to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. But in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and you'll notice that the capitalization of the word, uh, the W in the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The translation is here is the Logos. That Jesus is this word. Jesus is this logos. In verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made uh, through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Great commentary here in the Bible. Now I want you to turn to this passage. Again, John was just obsessed with this. Go to the epistle towards the end of the New Testament, the epistle of 1 John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4. And so we've drawn from Hebrews chapter 1. We're drawn here from Colossians chapter 1. We've drawn even, you know, 1 Timothy. We've drawn even from, uh, you know, Isaiah. 
And we just finished with the Gospel of John. But now 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. John the Beloved, the Apostle. What's interesting, if you know anything about John the Beloved, when Jesus is on the cross and he's getting ready to give up the ghost, he gives John to his mother and his mother to John. Beautiful relationship. And so here, 1 John chapter 1, look at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. John was an eyewitness testimony. John saw the risen Christ. John held the risen Christ. He says here, and our hands have handled concerning. And he gives them another title, the word of life. And through Christ is salvation. In verse 2, he says, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you the eternal life. Another title given to Christ which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship. The word is koinonia. You can break bread together because we know this risen Christ. He says here also that we may have fellowship with us and through our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And you don't just have fellowship with anybody, but there has to be this relationship. And so when we break bread together, it's the body of Christ. And so we have broken bread together with Christ. Look at verse 4, the conclusion here. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Why does he say your joy may be full? Your joy may be full because we've come now to eternal life. We've come now to this word of life. John says we handled him. Well, now we have partaken of him. And so we can rejoice. We can be filled here with joy. Now we have so much that we can draw from. Let me give you another verse because it just, again, speaks of itself. Peter speaks of it. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, Peter says, Jesus has gone into heaven. He is at the right hand of God. He says, angels and authorities and powers being made subject, subject unto him. You see, Jesus is God. We go back to creation. Jesus was there. We go before creation. Jesus was already there because Jesus is God. Then lastly here, Paul gives us another insight. In the book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 36, let me read it to you. Of him, he's speaking of Christ, through him, to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Everything we want to see about the Father, we look at Christ. He is this uh, eternal Life. He is this word of life. He is this I am statement. And so imagine as Paul's teaching this uh, to the church at Colossae. And the skeptics were there as the skeptics are today. Some of you have shared with your loved ones. And they don't believe. They say, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. I believe I'm a Christian. You know, I go to church, but I'm not radical like you. You know, I don't go into that born-again experience. I was water baptized as an infant, or I was water baptized, you know, way back. I was 8 years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, and yet your life doesn't show Christianity. Your life still shows, (coughs) excuse me, the world. And so the hardship. Now, let's go back to our text. Look at verse 17 now. Paul continues to draw this preeminent Christ. In verse 17, and he is before all things. He is speaking about Jesus Christ. You say, well, Paul was caught up into this. You better believe it. And we should be caught up into this too. We just finished Christmas and we'll hear that terminology. Jesus is the reason for the season. Uh, Correct. But what do we do the rest of the year? Jesus is everything, church. 
And in some circles, those are fighting words. Again, look at verse 17. And he, Christ, is before all things, and in him all things consist. And we're going to be speaking about his position in creation. All things consist. We have already read and established that uh, he, Jesus Christ, created all things. Then he is before all things. And now the world, or the word consist here in the Greek, is that all things stand by him. All things are set by him. All things are sustained by him because he is God. I like this translation. Jesus is the cohesion of all creation. Jesus Christ is the glue that holds the world and the universe together. I like that. I shared that I, I love commentaries. I, I usually use the scriptures when uh, applicable, but there's some old scholars I like to learn from. And I often quoted uh, this gentleman by the name of John Lightfoot. Now, John Lightfoot's interesting. He was a scholar in England around the 1650s. And he says this about verse 17. Because of Jesus, we have the cosmos and not chaos. Oh, I love that. He's making reference where it says, and he... Speaking of Christ is before all things, and in him all things consist. He says, because of Christ, we have the cosmos, the universe, not chaos. Not only is he creator of all things, but he holds all things together. Now, I want you to think of the earth, and, you know, I'm not into uh, the universe and such. I, I know that the sun comes up. I know that the moon comes up, and I see the beautiful stars here. Now, if you're a Southern Californian like I was, because Californians don't think there's any stars. They think all the stars are in Hollywood. They can't see them, the smog. That's what I'm trying to get to. But when we speak of the universe... When we speak of the creation of God, man, I want you to look at the things that are out there for us. I've often told you, my wife and I, uh, we go up 70, we make a left on Delray, and then you make a right on Westmoreland, and you go up the hill. That's the way Westmoreland travels. And then about three-quarters of the way, our house is off to the left. But there's that certain evening and you know what I'm talking about here in the Southwest. And we're going home at dusk or so, or maybe an hour into the evening, and then I turn up, and it never fails. It just blows me away. There's this humongous moon, and it's drawing the reflection from the sun that's going down, and it's just this bright orange. I mean, it looks like a navel orange, incredible. And you sense you can just grab it. And so instead of pulling in my driveway, I keep going. I say, I'll go to the top of the hill. It's there. I know it's there. And that's the beauty of God, the creation of God. All things consist, and all things are held up by him. Now, Dr. Martin Vincent, on his word study that he wrote back in, in the 1800s, I want you to listen to his his commentary on verse 17, it's powerful. He's speaking about Christ, the all-powerful one, the all-holy word of the Father, spreads his power over everything or all things everywhere, enlightening things seen and unseen, holding and binding all together in himself. Nothing is left empty of his presence, but to all things and through all things, severely and collectively, he is the giver and sustainer of life. He, the wisdom of God, holds the universe in tune together. I like that. He it is who, binding all with each and ordering all things by his will and pleasure, produces the perfect unity of nature and the harmonious reign of the law. 
while he abides unmoved forever with the Father, he yet moves things by his own appointment according to the Father's will. Now, you know, we remember when we were back in, in, you know, science classes and such. And maybe you've taken extended classes at the university, but, you know, I just trust and I see the universe. Now, we're told that the earth sits in an axis, just a slight tilt. And if it went either way, disaster, chaos. But no, we see the cosmos. And again, look at verse 17, church. And he, Christ, is before all things, and in him all things consist. All things consist. Years back in our shepherd school, I remember Pastor Xavier, he was teaching in this particular subject. And he was speaking about the preeminence of Christ. And I never forgot it. He says, you know, God holds up this universe, this world of ours, in such beauty. I mean, we go to bed, we wake up, and we just take all these things for granted. He says, what if God just gave up for a nanosecond? I'm not going to hold up the earth anymore. Chaos. We'd be gone. We'd be dust. Lord, thank you. That in him, all things consist. All things are glued. The cohesion of God. The fingerprint. The blueprint. God is in control. Jesus is God. <coughs> Excuse me. Look at verse 18 now. And he is the head of the body. The church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in all things... He may have this preeminence. That's what we've been speaking about. Jesus Christ, we know, is the head of the church, head of the body of the church. He is the, the first of all who will rise from the dead. So he is the first in everything. The word firstborn is first in eminence, superiority. Not first in chronological order because Jesus always was. And we must say amen to that. The firstborn, the first begotten of the Father, back in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This word firstborn, in the Greek is the word protos. And it's only found here in the New Testament. And the literal translation is be first. Not to be, but be first. That's Christ. Or to have first place that Jesus has the first place, the supremacy of all things, church. That is why the name of Jesus Christ is an offense to so many. But to those that are saved, Jesus is God. Savior of the world. You see, the Gnostics could not hang with that. There are still Gnostics today, and they can't hang with that. Well, Jesus is just a good man. Jesus is good to have around if you're one of the ten lepers and you have leprosy. Jesus is good to have at a, at a blown-out picnic where 5,000 need to be fed. Jesus is a good man to have at the wedding feast, and the wine runs out, and so you call upon him. You see, there's a lot of reasons why people follow Jesus. I was a good humanitarian, good historian. He was a great preacher. I mean, he was so logical in the things that he shared. No, Jesus is God. He died on the cross to give us life, life eternal. And he is this preeminence. Such an offense to so many. Some of you have experienced that when you share with somebody, even sometimes your own family members. Well, I'm okay, we're okay. It'll all pan out at the end. Do we know Christ as our Savior? Look at verse 19 now. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness, and I believe he's speaking about the fullness of the Godhead, should dwell. It pleased the Father. Listen, it, it was the Father's approval. He approved 
that in Christ the fullness dwell. The Greek word here, in fullness, that in Christ the complete inhabitants. He is the permanent house, the supremacy, the complete house. Again, in Christ is everything. In him is all the world, all the universe. All in all is in Christ. Now just flip over to Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse 9 real quick. We'll study that later. Paul writes and he says, in him, he's speaking of Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. When we get to heaven, I believe that we will see Christ on the throne. Well, Pastor Bob, what about God the Father and what about God the Spirit? I believe in the Trinity. But in the Godhead bodily, we will see Christ. And I believe we will experience uh, the nail prints. We will experience the markings of the crown of thorns of how he was he suffered greatly for us. Jesus, church, is this preeminent Christ. Now, look at verse 20. We're going to come to the conclusion. We have a few more verses to share. And by him, to reconcile all things to himself. He says, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Verse 20, he's just bringing it full circle. Through Jesus Christ, God has reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means. Now, listen, here's the key of his blood on the cross. There has to be this blood sacrifice. book of Hebrews teaches that Jesus is the complete sacrifice. Now, this Greek word reconciliation or to reconcile, it is a very strong word. It is a strong double compound in the Greek, a word that only is used here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, and also, we're going to read that, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. The word to reconcile basically means to reconcile completely. Completely. And again, Lightfoot in his commentary, this was to counter the Gnostics. And I don't know if I totally agree with that because you don't have to counter the Gnostics. God is who he is. Jesus is God. But he says here, this was to counter the Gnostics. They taught salvation through knowledge. Here we see complete, listen, reconciliation through the precious blood of Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago at Calvary. Now, take, if you're taking notes, write this down. In the book of Hebrews, <coughs> excuse me, chapter 9, verse 22. Listen to what the writer brings forth. He says, if there is no shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. If there is no shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, in the Old Testament, you would bring in your animal sacrifices. And we would sacrifice the animals, the priesthood, and sprinkle the blood and such. And then next week, you'd have to do it again. And then it was mandatory to come to certain feast days. When it was time for Passover, I mean, Jerusalem was filled. Josephus, in his uh, historical writing, said that in the time of Passover, it was nothing for the priesthood to sacrifice 250,000 lambs. You see, Jesus becomes the complete sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. By him, speaking of Christ, to reconcile all things to himself. By him, uh, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace uh, through the blood of his cross. And the cross of Christ, the Bible says, is an offense to those that are perishing. But to us, it's the power of life. It's salvation. 
Now, maybe this morning you don't have a problem, but you're going to run in to those that don't agree in the sacrifice of Christ. They don't agree. You see, they put Jesus at the manger scene at Christmas. We just celebrated. Oh, look at the cute little Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes. Listen, that cute little Jesus before time was already before Genesis 1-1. And by the way, as you're looking at the Christ child in swaddling clothes, that little baby Jesus was born to die for the sins of mankind. Thank you, Lord. Now, this word reconciliation, we want to tie it up now. Go to the book of Ephesians. Back it up a little bit. Go to chapter 2 and look at verse 14 through 18. Paul here speaks to the church at Ephesus concerning Christ is our peace. Christ is our peace when we have accepted him. Christ is our peace when he has become my Savior, your Savior. Otherwise, Jesus is just another name. He's just Jesus of Nazareth. I read about all his miracles, signs, and wonders, but have we accepted this risen Christ. And so listen to what Paul says to the church at, at Ephesus, Ephesians 2, look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace. peace. He's speaking about Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both one and has broken down, listen to this, the middle wall of separation. The middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. The wall of pride. The wall of hatred. The wall of uh, hostility. Uh, the wall of anger. I mean, you can just put in all the sins. God breaks those walls. When Jesus died, we're told that the temple rent in two. Ironically, we're told that in history, the Sanhedrin went back and sewed the temple uh, curtain back up. You see, they couldn't allow Christ as the Messiah. In fact, the Jews today in a whole are waiting for Messiah. My Bible says the Messiah that they're going to receive is called the Antichrist. But Jesus already died. You see, they wanted a, a Messiah. The Mashiach was to come in their eyes to rule with an iron fist, to rid them of the oppression of Rome. But Jesus, according to the book of Isaiah, their prophet said, he would come to die as a meek lamb. They missed it. Look at verse 15. Still speaking about Christ, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, rituals, rites, and customs, basically, so as to create in himself one new man for the two, thus making peace. Now, let me give you the translation. Jesus' death ended the system of Jewish law that extended or excluded, excuse me, uh, the Gentiles. His purpose was to make peace between Jew and Gentile by creating in himself one new person for the two groups. Jesus Christ is God. You see, the Jew is still looking for Messiah. What did Jesus tell Philip? You've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. And so they couldn't grasp that. But to us it's cut and dry that Jesus Christ is God. Look at verse 16. And that he might reconcile, there's that word again, them both, speaking of Jew and Gentile, reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting uh, to death the enmity. Jesus' blood. Reconcile, remember the word? It's compound. Reconcile completely all men to God. One body in Christ, Jew and Gentile, through the cross of Jesus Christ, become one body. Jesus put to death all enmity. Now listen to the word enmity. He put to death, he killed all hatred, malice, hostility. He killed all sin at the cross. All we have to do is ask Christ, forgive me. Come into my life. It's a done deal. And you start to live for Christ. Hmm. 
You see, verse 16 here fulfills. Listen, you can go back and check it. Uh, the prophecy in Genesis 3.15. That Jesus was going to crush enmity. Look at verse 17 now. And he came and he preached uh, peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. He brought this good news, this gospel message of peace to Gentiles who were afar off, away from him, and to us Jews who were near. This is what Paul's saying. He, he's brought it together, brought it to one. There's not two groups. We're all one in Christ. And he comes to the conclusion in verse 18. For through him we both have access by one spirit uh, to the Father. I love that. Both Jew and Gentile, because they're, uh, you can't, you're either Jew or you're Gentile. Both Jew and Gentile uh, can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. The Holy Spirit prompts our heart. The cross, listen, completely or completes it all. The cross completes it all for Jew and Gentile. All we have to do is come to Christ freely, and it takes faith. It takes faith. And as you look at the Scriptures, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The Holy Spirit testifies to my heart, to your heart, who Christ is. I don't understand why people make salvation such a hardship. Well, you know, I got to do this. You know, I got to do that. And I got to, you know, you got all these do's and don'ts. Man, come to Christ freely by faith and let him do the work in you. I thank God nobody told me you have to stop drinking. You have to stop selling drugs. You have to stop curse. <coughs> Excuse me. You have to stop cursing. Nobody told me that. But the Holy Spirit, as I truly accepted Christ, comes into your life and he teaches you. Listen, being a Christian here on Sunday morning, that's the easy task. What about tomorrow morning? Your workplace. Tomorrow morning, your school. Tomorrow morning, maybe you'll be with relatives, friends, loved ones. That's when we determine our Christian walk our manner of life, not just here Sunday morning. Sunday morning, praise God, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, brothers, sisters in Christ. It's beautiful. Do you do the same thing at Walmart? Ah, oh, she took my spot. How dare her? And I just saw her at church. Look at her. Well, let's not pick on the ladies. Look at him. I don't like the way he chews his gum. And you were just, you know, praising God together. Where's the change? Where's the transformation? The scripture says, with these hands I worship God, and then I do mischief. With this mouth I praise Him and I worship Him, and then I bring forth cursings. There's not a double standard. You're a Christian, not Sunday morning. You're a Christian 24-7. And so we've been declaring this preeminent Christ. Now, how do I come to saving grace? In Romans 10, 13, Paul so beautifully says, those that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Simple, cut and dry. Let God do the work. Years ago, there was a young man came into the church. He comes in with a Budweiser t-shirt. A couple of the elders got all frustrated there. Hey, Pastor Bob, we got to take his t-shirt off. And we got one over here and, and, you know, in the room and we'll give him another. No, leave the guy alone. Let him take Budweiser off. You know, listen, who made us the Holy Spirit? Change the letters, make it say, be wiser. <laughs> but let God do it. Those that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's all stand. We'll end with a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you, Lord. We praise you. We worship you. Lord, this morning we, we covered so many uh, avenues, Lord, of the preeminence of Christ. We saw it in Hebrews. We saw it in the Gospel of John. We saw it in the Epistle of First John. 
We read it in 1 Timothy. Uh, we looked at small scripture there uh, in Isaiah, that his name is above all names. Lord, we looked at the text in Colossians. By him all things consist because he is God. And Lord, maybe this morning somebody's here visiting, somebody's here traveling through, somebody's here, uh, you've been to the ministry before, and maybe you haven't accepted Christ. I want to give you that opportunity. I'm not here to pressure you. I came to saving grace. You need to come to saving grace, just as maybe your mom and dad, brother, sister, or maybe your aunt, your uncle, whoever it might be, maybe you're invited, whatever, and they've accepted Christ, but what about you? You see, our salvation is not based upon mom and dad. Our salvation is based upon you, your relationship with God, be it young or old. And so this morning, I want to just give you an opportunity. I'm not going to ask you uh, to come up, but right there where you're at, if you're not sure and you'd like to receive Christ, would you indicate and say, yes, pastor, that's me. Raise your hand. I want to say a simple prayer of faith with you. Anybody here this morning would like to receive Christ. Don't leave here, please, without him. Search your heart real quick. If that's you, you don't know Christ, raise your hand. I want to say a quick prayer with you. Anybody. Praise the Lord. And let's pray. If we're all Christian, praise God. Father, right now, I thank you, Lord, for these beautiful people, your saints, Lord. As we described last week that Paul called the church at Colossae saints of God. Thank you, Lord, for these, your beautiful saints, this morning. Lord, and I pray that each one of us have come uh, to saving grace. But if there is still that one person, we don't know who it is. They need to make it right with you, Lord. Father, let the conviction of the Holy Spirit come upon them, Lord. Father, bless this time. What a precious time. As we've learned, we've gleaned from your word. And Father, this morning, bless each and every one that's here. Encourage our hearts to study further your word. Father, bless the offerings this morning. As you've given to us, we give back a portion, Lord. And Father, we love you because you first loved us. In fact, the Bible says that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And I thank you for that, Lord. Now, Lord, that we might just follow you closer and closer each day. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray. And we all agree by saying amen. 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 The, uh,